Let's pray. Holy God and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that you have given us in your word, the truth in Christ Jesus and the gospel. Fill us, shape us according to your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So for those who are visiting with us, we've been doing a series in the Psalms, and it's been good to do a series in the Psalms. They don't get covered very much. And we have seen God's wisdom, His sovereignty. We have also seen the care for he, that He has for us two weeks ago with the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, and what a caring, comforting Psalm that is. But we also have seen that in Psalm 51, we can cry out to him. We can confess our sin and receive his forgiveness. And so we are no longer shackled by the remorse. We are no longer slaves to sin, but free in Christ Jesus. And the Psalms are good because we can relate to them in a way that we necessarily can't relate to other parts of the Bible. They tend to be very personal and sometimes very emotional. And this morning in Psalm 79, it is a psalm of a different nature. It is very raw. It is very emotional. There is both anger and anguish. That is, that, that is, it is anger and anguish at which which is going on in the nation of Israel that there is not only destruction, but there is spiritual destruction as well. And so in this anger, the psalmist even asks for God's wrath, his vengeance to be poured out upon his enemies. And although that sounds kind of harsh, I bet there are a lot of people today, right here and throughout our nation, that are angry, that are in anguish about what's going on in our nation right now. And so I think this psalm is relevant in many different ways for us. And that there's, there's a lot of things that we can learn from this particular song, psalm. So one thing that we can learn is that it's okay. It's okay to express the full uh, range of emotions that we have. That we don't have to have everything in a nice, tidy bow tied up, nice and neat, and pray in King James language before God, that we can come to Him and express whatever we need to express. That we can cry out to Him, How long, O Lord? How long will this evil reign? And we can cry out to Him when He seems distant from us and distant, perhaps, from our nation. And we can also learn to cry out for God's justice. And this is an important point, because we often want to cry out for vengeance, or even personal revenge. But we need to learn, it's okay to cry out for God's justice, but it is not okay to cry out for personal vengeance, or personal revenge. Because the truth is, when we get angry enough, we often want to say, okay, God, I love you, but would you step off your throne for a minute? 
I want to sit there and I want to give out justice the way I think it should be given out. In essence, let me play God for a while, which is always very dangerous. Because when we do that, we forget the fullness of God's word. Ezekiel says, chapter 33, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And we also, in the New Testament, we have from Romans chapter 12, 19 through 21, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, we are told it's okay to cry out to God for his righteousness, his justice, but not personal vengeance. So let's cry out to the Lord this morning all of us together in this psalm. And we cry out first in mourning, as in sorrow. It says this, and it is verse 1 through 4. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heaven for food the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. So let me give you a little bit of history regarding this particular psalm. First of all, it's hard to say exactly when this psalm was written. But when you start to take a look at it, you have some clues that would lead us to a certain conclusion. For example, it talks about Jerusalem is is destroyed, that the temple is defiled, destroyed as well. And so when we take a look at history, we know that this would have been 586 B.C. It was during that time that King Nebuchadnezzar overcame Judah and overcame Jerusalem. So we know by that particular history that that was the time. You might remember King Nebuchadnezzar from the book of Daniel, where he put the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the furnace. Remember, that's King Nebuchadnezzar. But King Nebuchadnezzar, from not only the Bible, but from other parts of history, he was a very brutal, very forceful, very vicious ruler. So we have an account in the Bible about his destroying Jerusalem. It's actually found in 2 Kings chapter 25. I'm going to read just a truncated version of some of those verses so you can get a clue as to what happened. And in the ninth year of his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came with all of his army against Jerusalem 
and laid siege to it. The famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all of the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. This is utter destruction, utter devastation. And it's really hard for us to understand that. I mean, I was trying to take a look at the things in America anyway, when we would take a look at such destruction. For one particular generation, what would stand out was Pearl Harbor. I guess maybe for us in our generation, it would be 9-11. That maybe you weren't even there, but you watched on TV. And you saw the buildings burning, the people jumping out of the buildings to their death. And at ground zero, there was the acrid smoke, the flames, the ash. If you can think of that, think of Jerusalem being destroyed. But it wasn't even that. It was more than that. It was the spiritual destruction Because Jerusalem and the temple were the holy place of God. This was the life, the faith of the nation of Jerusalem. This was the city on the hill. This was the place that God had given them. The city of God. And so it was not just a physical destruction. It was a spiritual destruction. And it talks about the bodies not even being buried. And so there was that desecration on top of everything else. Now, in our nation, we don't have such physical attacks on Christianity, although they're rising. But I've talked to you about it before in numerous times about our brothers and sisters around the world where there really is blood in the streets, where really churches, buildings are burned down and there are ashes. So that is truly an attack on Christianity, an attack on those who have faith. In America, we don't see the attacks as much, but there is a spiritual attack going on. A spiritual attack going on. And by the way, I know this psalm, this today is more serious. So if you're visiting today, you just came into a whole series that tends to be a little bit more serious. Okay, but we, we need to deal with it. We can't just skip over the stuff we don't like. So there is a spiritual attack going on. And the spiritual attacks are first and foremost foremost on the foundational teaching of Christianity to undermine the foundations of our faith. We see a lot of the symptoms of the spiritual attacks going on this very day. Last week in the news, there was an article about a drag queen who came up on the altar 
and was teaching children. This is just a desecration. But we could also go on. We could say there are so many prosperity preachers who are literally bilking millions out of the congregations. A couple of weeks ago, I think maybe about a month ago, there was a young pastor in a church, didn't look very big, but he was berating his congregation because they didn't get him this very expensive fancy watch for his birthday. Right? That's a spiritual symptom as well. Another spiritual symptom is where you get social justice replacing the gospel. You get a social gospel, not the actual gospel. And so you get people who are teaching critical race theory. They're teaching diversity inclusion, which ultimately is not about diversity inclusion. It becomes about racism. And really, there is no forgiveness being preached in those types of situations. There's only the law and punishment. Now, as horrific as all of these are, and there's more, right? You can read the news, listen to the news. Don't do it too much because you'll just get angry. But these are all symptoms of the spiritual attack on the foundation of our faith. Let me give you an example. So every two years, there's a ministry called Ligonier Ministries. It was started by R.C. Sproul. Very good ministry. They have done what's called the state of theology. They did it in 2020. They did it this year, 2022. And they have a survey of 35 questions. By the way, in your sermon notes, you have the link to the results of the survey. You can also take the survey yourself. I did one for Joy Church. All all, uh, results are anonymous. But it would be interesting to see the state of theology here at Joy Church. 35 questions. And I'm going to give you just three of those questions and let you know what the results of this particular survey were. So the first one is, the first statement was, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths but it's not literally true. Okay? So the Bible, what we have, is not true. It's just myths that can be helpful in our lives. Now, out of all the survey respondents, 53% agreed with that statement. Of those who said they are evangelical Christians, and by the way, that category now has become almost meaningless, but who at least said that they're Christians and believe in the gospel, 26% said it's not true. It's just helpful. See a problem with this? Let me give you another question. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. So the respondents in 2020 uh, said 23% agreed that religious belief is just my opinion. In 2022, it jumped to 38%. And these are of evangelicals. So in essence, hey, it's just a flavor. 
You know, if you like the flavor of Christianity, well, that's okay. If you like the flavor of Islam, that's okay. If you like the flavor of whatever else, that's okay. But what did Jesus say? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. For Jesus, it was not just a matter of personal opinion. Let me give you a third one then. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, in 2020, 30% agreed. And just two years later, it jumped to 43%. If these statements, if the Bible really isn't God's word, if religious belief is just a matter of opinion, if Jesus is not God, if all of that's true, we should pack it up right now. There are a lot easier religions and beliefs out there. Really, there are. But if it is true, and I believe wholeheartedly it is, what God has said, what Jesus has said, is true, then we need to follow the truth of the matter. And in our culture, what has been attacked more than anything is the idea of truth. So, we mourn for our country and our world because of that. And sometimes, we cry out, How long, O Lord? And there's some anger behind it. It says, How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Going on through verse 8, Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. How long, O Lord, is really a call, a crying out to God to change a very hard situation. Now, sometimes those hard situations, we cry out to the Lord. How long? Because it's very personal and our circumstances are going on. But other times, it's at some much larger scale for the nation, for the sake of the faithful. In fact, if you take a look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. So what's happening in that chapter is Jesus, the Lamb of God, is opening up the scroll. And the scroll has seven seals on it. And each seal is a judgment against the people of the earth who have rejected him. So each seal is a judgment. Verse 9 says, when he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? These are the saints in heaven crying out for the justice, for the vengeance of God because the blood has been spilled. But you have to understand 
that their plea, their prayer is not a prideful prayer asking for revenge. It's a cry of anger pleading for God's just judgment, for God's just justice. See, so you have to understand the psalmist who wrote Psalm 79 didn't think, didn't pretend that the nation of Israel was without sin, that they were blameless. He doesn't say that at all. As a matter of fact, he says that they did sin, they were to blame, and that they did deserve God's wrath. This is why he says, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy or anger burn like fire against us? And by the way, just because we follow the Lord doesn't mean that we won't feel the effects of sin in the world. We're still going to feel the effects of sin, whether ours or somebody else's. But the psalmist goes on, he says, you know, though we have sinned, we repent of that sin. Please forgive us. Remember not our former iniquities, our former transgressions. Let your compassion be with us. So this is not a prideful prayer for revenge. It's asking for God's justice. And again, I want to emphasize this point. It's really easy. It's really easy to pray something like this. Lord God, pour out your wrath against all the unrighteous on the earth. Right? We, we would pray something like that. What's the problem with that prayer? We're the unrighteous as well. You know, Paul wrote this. He says in Romans chapter 3, chapter three As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks God. And it's true, no, none of us truly understand God. We don't have God's view of the picture. We don't have the patience of God. We don't have the wisdom of God, nor do we have the compassion of God. But we do know God is holy. We do know He is righteous. And we must trust Him to act in His time according to His will, according to His promises. Even when we are under the weight of the sin of the evil in this world, We have to trust Him and His will. And this is hard to do. I don't know about you, but I get pretty impatient sometimes. You see, ultimately, vengeance is not ours to take. It's in the hand of God. You know, go back to Romans chapter 12 or our reading today. Because God does promise that there will be justice. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. That's the righteous judgment of God, that in Christ Jesus you are worthy of the kingdom of God. There's the gospel message right there. For which you are suffering, suffering for the sake of the gospel. Since indeed God considers it just to repay repay affliction with those who afflict you 
and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So he says there will be justice. There will be wrath poured out upon those who reject the gospel. For what does it mean to obey the gospel? It means to believe in him whom God sent. This is the gospel, the good news. So we cry out in mourning. We cry out in anger. We also cry out for the glory of God's name. Verse 9 from Psalm 79. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve the doomed to die. Return sevenfold in the lap of our neighbor the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. So, as human beings, we want to claim things as ours. And it starts at a very early age. It starts with little kids. That's mine. That toy's mine. Right? Do you have to teach them that? No, they know that from the beginning. That's mine. That chair's mine. And what parent hasn't heard this in the car? That's my side of the car. Right? Or maybe you had arguments with your siblings. That's my side. But, oh, no, 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 it it continues on. Spouses say, that's my side of the bed. Right? We do that. And it flows out into various other aspects of our life. In businesses, we have buildings named after a particular person. We have intellectual property rights. That's mine. And we fight for our name. Right? We do all. It even goes into churches, by the way, where we want to put up ourselves. So, for example, a lot of pastors, a lot of websites, they don't proclaim Jesus on their website. They proclaim the pastor on their website. But it happens right in the pews. How many of you have been in a church where there have been names on the back of a pew. Or people gasp in horror because you're sitting in somebody's chair. Right? We want to do all of that because it's mine, and we want to claim it for our name's sake. But really, how vain is that? It's all vanity, isn't it? A chasing after the wind? See, the psalmist says it's for the sake of his name, for his glory, for his name. See, to pray for the sake of God's name is to pray for the full nature and character of God. See, when we say God, we mean one who is above all things. By his very word, he said, let there be, 
And there was. He is God Almighty, El Shaddai. When we say God, we speak of God who is self-existent, who is eternal, who has no beginning or end. There never was a time when God was not. When we say God, we say one who is holy above all things. The one in, in front of that Moses had to take off his sandals because even the very ground that Moses was standing on was holy. The one who sits on the throne and all the creatures around the throne say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. When we say God, we mean one who is loving, who is love itself, who is the source of all love. And his steadfast love for us sent his son to die for us. To die a death we should have died so that we may live. So when we say God is not a small, ineffectual prayer. It is a prayer to one who is sovereign over all things. It is a prayer to him for whom nothing is impossible, for all things are possible in God, with God. And so we pray in His name for His glory. We pray for His protection, but we also pray for Him to deal with what is profane. So when I say profane, I don't mean just profanity as in vulgar words. Profane is an irreverence or contempt for God. It is words and actions used to show the basis disregard of God. It is a callousness of the soul. So when the nations say this, Where is your God? It is a mocking taunt, a profane taunt, a contempt of God. And we see this in our culture throughout. A callousness of the soul. Jesus' name is just used as a cuss word, as a filler word. And in the midst of calamity, of destruction, of even death, the enemies of God will look at Christians and say, where's your God now, huh? Where was he in that hurricane? Where was he in that mass shooting? Where is your God now? And a lot of Christians get stumped by this. They do. And they shirk back from their faith because you don't know how to answer. So I'm going to give you three answers. I'm borrowing from John, Pastor John Piper. Where is God? He's in heaven, doing all that He pleases. The psalm says this, Psalm 115, Our God is in heaven, in the heavens, he does all that it pleases him. He is always reigning on his throne and doing the things according to his infinite wisdom and his internal plan. There's not a moment that God is not sovereign over all things. Psalm 104 says this, O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom. You have done them all. Psalm uh, uh, sorry, Isaiah 46. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all, and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
Where is God? He is in heaven reigning, doing what he pleases, for what he pleases is good and perfect. Where is God? God is standing in front of them, ready to forgive them. We talked about Ezekiel. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked would turn from his way and live. Why did God send His Son? So that we might be forgiven by faith in Him. Where is God? With judgment prepared. See, if you read the book of Revelation, you understand God's judgment. In chapter 8, you'll see that there are seven angels who one at a time blow a trumpet. And at the sound of the trumpet, there is a judgment that comes upon the earth. And at the last trumpet, it says this, Revelations chapter 11, verse 15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. At that last trumpet, there is praise and there is rejoicing because our God reigns, because Christ Jesus reigns. You know that song? For he shall sound the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of all before his judgment seat. Will be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Where is our God? He is marching on. And nothing stops him. And so we give praise to him. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. It's kind of an odd way to end this psalm, isn't it? But there's an echo of the 23rd psalm there. That we are the sheep and he is our shepherd. And he will protect us. He will care for us. He will fulfill his promises in his steadfast love. And we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So when do we praise God? We praise him in the good times and the bad. We praise him in the storm. We praise him when there is clear sailing. We praise him when there is anger and anguish. We praise him when there is joy and jubilation. We praise him no matter what. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. There's a lot in this psalm, I know. A couple things for you to remember. It's okay to bring our raw emotions to God. It's okay to pray for those who are doing evil to be stopped or thwarted for God's just justice to be brought to bear. And by the way, how do you know God's justice? Well, do you have a biblical world view? It's not okay for you to seek personal vengeance. Just read Romans again. 
And finally, no matter the circumstances, praise Him always. There's much to learn from the Psalms, isn't there? They're raw, they're emotional. They are God's Word for us, for our edification, for our faith. Amen.